Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, this has been a podcast that has changed from, you know, truly just ranting and raving to really getting deeper into conversations with those who I feel need that spotlight and deserve that spotlight. And I am resilient. Ricky the Kid Kittier is no exception. Good evening, Ricky. Thanks for joining. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Alex, for having me. Appreciate you. So, you know, first of all, TikTok, they give it a bad rap, right? But there you were partying it up, being released, being very joyful about it. And I'm like, I got to get this guy on. So why don't we start there? What's your story? Um, as you said, my name is Ricky Kidd and uh, I'm a statistic. I am also innocent and I was recently exonerated about 10 months ago uh, for a crime that I did not commit 23 years ago. So I did 23 years and three months in a maximum level five prison uh, again, for a crime that others had committed, a crime that the prosecutor at the time knew uh, that I did not commit, yet she sent me to prison anyway. Um, what, was, what was the crime? Because I, I still have not seen that in the, in the bio. So what, what exactly was the yeah, crime? So that you were it was uh, two counts of first-degree murder. Two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of armed criminal action. Uh, they gave me four lives without the possibility of parole. I was 21 at the time of charge, 22 at the time of conviction. I'm 45 now. Me and Alex, I spent more time in a place I didn't belong than or rather opposed to a place that I should have never left. Um, I, I often wonder in these kind of cases if they were planting evidence against you, if that was going on as well, or what? how did they come to this conclusion? Um, a tidbit short of planting, what the detectives did do was they participated in what they call a suggestive identification, meaning that they'll bring a witness in and that witness don't know who to pick out, but they will suggest to the witness who to pick out through a series of questions. Uh, They'll show, like in my case, they show my witness, uh, or rather the state witness, a single photo first. And then he Mm -hmm. said, "Uh, I don't, then they showed him a five man photo spread and then uh, it's just really what they saying is pick out the same face. Let's see if you can pick out the same face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when he wasn't sure in the five-man photo spread, they went and did a video lineup. And here I was, the only same face in the video lineup. So he picked me out and said that was me. Now, again, that's short of planting evidence, but it is an illegal procedure uh, uh, that uh, should not be taking place within our police departments across the country. In addition to that, let me say as well, sure. the prosecutor 
had taken sworn depositions of individuals who was likely the culprits at the time back in 1996. When mm. they came into her office and gave these sworn depositions with detectives presence, she realized that they was essentially confessing, but she had already charged me. Oh, and so no. what she decided to do was take that information, kind of bottle it up, tuck it away, and then she never turned it over to me, never turned it to, over to my lawyers, never turned it over to the courts. So she essentially hid the truth. Again, not quite as, as uh, uh, salacious as planning evidence, but it's very, very, very sad that we have police departments and prosecutors doing this type of unethical stuff. I understand this person, this judge, this, this prosecutor, she's being disbarred, isn't she? Something to that she, she has been fired. Uh, which I was shocked because I will say this, listen, here's a shocking announcement to your listening audience. Typically, no, nothing happens. Nothing mm -hmm. typically happens. And, and I thought, well, here goes another, another case where something as greasy as this and nothing happens, but they did fire her. I came home in August and November they fired her and they are in the process. They're currently in the process of trying to disbar. So Hopefully that is the case. I would say congratulations uh, on that, by the way, because I, I know from what your colleagues and assistants were telling me, you literally studied the law. And I want to get that in one second. But the night that you were accused of doing all this, were you on the scene at all or were you not even there? Because it oh, sounds no. like you weren't even there. No, not at all. 100% not at all. In fact, it wasn't night. It was daytime. It was in broad daytime. It was around 11 a.m. or 11.40 a.m. Uh, in the daytime. This crime happened in broad daylight. And I not only Alex. Mm -hmm. Now, I was shocked. So when the police come up, pull me in and say, tell me where you were, I'm saying, listen, I'm going to do you one better than that. I'm going to tell you where I were all day. I'm going to sure. give you a whole timeline from beginning. And I did that from beginning to almost to the end of the day. Uh, and I brought a whole bunch of witnesses in to attest to the fact that he was here at this time. He was here at this time. But let me get you with this. Here go another shocking announcement to your listening audience. I was at the Jackson County Sheriff's Department applying for a legal handgun, a, a, a gun permit uh, because of the To protect your family, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what people do when they mm -hmm. go purchase legal firearms. Uh, and so I was there on February 6, 1996. Uh, I told my lawyers this. I told the uh, police this, but they did not do their due diligence. Uh, and then my lawyer didn't do it at all. And the prosecutor called somebody from the sheriff's department who don't even handle the process for which I was being processed. We had to go back in, look at the records and dig up who actually processed my application. We found her. She came to court and testified. No way he would have been anywhere else. She broke down the timestamps on the uh, uh, um what they call the little mules check where the mules check come back. She broke her okay. whole process down, how it couldn't have been on the fifth. It couldn't have been on the seventh. It would have been on February 6th and it would have been during this time frame. But again, 23 years later, uh, almost 23 years too late. Um, did you find that this prosecutor, did, did she have a racial bias? Is that also part of this reasoning that you were in jail? That's my hunch to be honest with you. That is my hunch. But I want to be responsible as an advocate and I want to be careful because there is no evidence, there is no clear evidence to suggest that. Okay. But here's why I say it, if I can qualify my response. 
the public defender system, our justice system, has bias, racial bias, baked into it extensively. Now, I can speak on that, and I can speak on it with a little bit more authority. The justice system itself has this bias baked, this, this racial bias baked into it, and so you could assume fairly that it bleeds over. It's like a spill, right? If you spill a little water right here, mm -hmm. it's subject to make its way over to here. It's so inundated, our justice system with racial bias, that you can't help but wonder, at least wonder, what type of bias did she really have when she saw this black defendant who, at the time, I wasn't in the church. I was a guy who was ripping and running the streets. I was a drug dealer. Uh, and okay. I had confessed to that. Um, and I was a good kid making bad choices. But, uh, but that didn't make me a bad guy. And it sure didn't make me guilty of murder and worthy of losing the rest of my life in prison for a crime that I did not commit. But I think she saw the hue of my skin and made, I just think, mm. and then she made a decision. His life is not worth it. I could cheat on this case. He's poor. He won't be able to have a real lawyer. They won't be able to even discover the little hanky-panky that she did. And that's what she did. Do you think some of these uh, public defenders and whatnot believe that those in jail are kind of stupid and not motivated to fix themselves and they make that mistake often? Because I'm sure when you're wrongfully accused, almost anybody's going to try and get out of that situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe if I could swap the word stupid and okay. replace it with ignorant. Okay. Uh, ignorant. And, and so, uh, yes, I think the, a significant, I did 23 years around those individuals you're talking about. And uh, street guys who usually get in trouble, their comprehension is usually low, typically. Their, uh, their comprehension is usually low. Their IQ is usually low. Uh, they, their ability to be able to think at a higher level or at a higher capacity is typically challenged. Uh, I could say that with authority as well because I took programs and taught programs while I was inside for those 23 years. I came and first. Go ahead, and, you, and you did the law, you studied the law, you took it in your own hands. And that's yeah. really admirable, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do think they factor that into the fact like, hey, they mm -hmm. don't know any better. Even myself, I think I was somewhat educated. I think I was a, a person who had a higher thinking capacity, but lack of knowledge. I did not know mm -hmm. the law. I did not understand the inner workings of the system. And so they can, ah, they can get you with a sneak punch. And before you know it, you're on your butt, you're looking up, and you're suddenly inside a level five maximum security prison for a crime that you did not commit. Um, I want to, I won't talk about the death of George Floyd, and I think that helped you inspire to get your story out even more. Sure. Um, but the lockdown, I mean, people are complaining about it, yet here you were 23 years wrongfully. You must be rolling your eyes at people that are like complaining about being in for a month. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I wonder how your reaction was during all that. Yeah, it was something that I was immune to. Uh, I remember a guy whose hands were used to heat. Uh, and I had a coffee cup inside prison. I was taking it to the microwave. It was in a tumbler cup instead of a regular coffee cup, actually. And it was so hot. I said, <laughs> and I put it back on top of the microwave. And he came and grabbed it and took it to my cell, walked it to my cell. I said, man, it was hot. He said, no, his hands were immune to it, to, to the heat. Sure. And so for me, I was immune to the fact of being locked down or isolated, not for 30, 60, 90 days, but for 23 years. So I did scarf a little bit, but not in a bad way, only to the extent to where I knew that people had not had that experience. Uh, and so what the local media did during that time, uh, the height of COVID here in this region is they reached out 
and they called on me. And we went to a park and they sat down and they interviewed me and they wanted me to help educate the community as it relates to how to get through uh, a situation where you're locked down and you're locked in. And so mm. I was honored to be called upon and hopefully the advice I gave helped the community. I'm sure it did. By the way, you're out of Kansas City, is that correct? I am Kansas City. And so you're a Chiefs fan, and it's funny, they win it right before the pandemic, right? So uh, you must have been a proud guy able to watch it out of prison uh, this Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, I did. I, I watched uh, Mahomes for the last few years. I called him my son. Uh, and then I, but I have to be honest, I'm not a big football fan. But, okay. this, uh, but this Patrick Mahomes guy, he really caught my attention. The first year he went up, I didn't miss a game. The second year, I missed some, but I paid close attention enough to watch them take it all the way. And, of course, as a Kansas Cityan, I was very proud. And, you know, they hadn't had – I mean, they've kind of been on a hot streak. at had the Royals a few years ago. Now you have the Chiefs. Yeah. So it, it's, it's a pretty cool run you guys are on. Um, but you're in this – Tell us your experience while in there and also while trying to get out of there at the same time. Yeah. In my early years, it was challenging. I'm 22. Mm-hmm. I don't know nobody in prison, not a soul, not a cousin, not a friend, not a neighbor down the block. So I'm thrust into this maximum level five security environment. I don't know a soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, never been in trouble before. Um, and here it is, I'm inside prison for a crime that I did not commit. So I can't even process the new environment, so to speak, enough, because I'm still processing the fact that I don't even belong here. So it was double for me, Mm -hmm. Um, the anguish, the mental anguish. It drove me to the point to where I was ready to commit suicide. Uh, And I thought about that uh, from the time I was in the county jail to the time I got convicted. I actually talked the psychiatrist into giving me some uh, anti-depression medicine and then bumping up the dose, thinking that I'll save these doses in 30 days. I'll take them all. And you know what? I'm going to end this. I don't want to live in a prison or a place that I didn't even uh, deserve to be here. Uh, Mm. It was very difficult to me. And I came very, very short. There's a story I tell when I tell my story, when I travel, very short of taking my life. It's a, I'm talking about that much of a distance. Uh, and Alex, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. What's the story that you tell when you go around the country talking about your resilient story? Sure. Um, and so if we piggyback in from the moment that I had saved those pills up, I saved those pills up. My cellmate had left, uh, transferred to another prison. So there was nobody there to stop me. I timed the guards from doing a round. They had just did a round. They wouldn't be back for an hour. I pulled those pills out. It would have been enough, I suppose, to shut my respiratory system down, take a long sleep, and never wake back up. But as I was there with the water in my hand and the pills in my other hand, uh, I, I began to shake real bad. And the water was spilling everywhere, so I ended up putting the cup down. But I was still shaking so bad. This is the moment. These are what we call defining. Yes. Yes. Uh, and pills are shaking so bad that they're falling out of my hands and hitting the ground. And then I just let them off. The rest of them just fall, uh, hit the ground. I hit the ground. Uh, wow. One of my Hearing, hardest, I'm sorry. Tearing up. Were you crying? As this oh, yeah. Happened? Well, one of my hardest cries ever. Well, two of them I had. One was that and one when I was being released or told that sure. I was being released. Uh, but I cried so hard on that ground. And I feel like uh, I'm a believer. And I feel like God has spoke to me uh, mm. and, and, and told me, get up. 
And I got up almost like a father. Now you clean that mess up. And I cleaned the mess up and you throw those pills away. And I threw those pills away. I looked myself in the mirror. I cleaned my face off. I said, I'm going to be a victor, not a victim. I'm going to fight, not falter. And that's exactly what I did from that day forward. The Ricky kid that you see now was the Ricky kid that I became. I activated my resilience. And that's what I try to train people on today how to or how they too can activate their resilience. Once I did it, Alex, it changed my whole circumference. It changed my whole perspective. And ultimately, I was able to win back my freedom. And by the way, I have to ask, God ended your daughters having your, your kids in your life, even if you couldn't see them every day. Did that still give you a purpose too? Or was that, what yeah, was that like? my story. Hey, we need to go on the road together because yeah. you're telling the story right along with me. One of the other things that was important to me aside from my faith or alongside my faith was my daughters. And when I didn't want to go on for myself, I would tell myself they need me. Mm -hmm. Um, Now they didn't tell me that per se, but I had to tell myself in my mind, they need me. I need to find something outside of myself to continue to go on for uh, because it would have been easier had I not projected my thoughts forward (laughs) or had I not figured out a way to hold on to this slippery piece of uh, a a slope, so to speak, or this slippery concrete on this jagged edge of a mountain. Help is trying to come. The cavalry is taking slow to get there, and my hands are cramping. Uh, I'm, I'm getting tired. I'm getting fatigued. I'm looking down. There go me. There go the ground. Thousands of feet below, uh, there's the Grand River, rapid water flowing, if you can imagine. And if I just let go, it'll be over. I'll have a gravity fall, and it'll be done. But I had to find a way to say, nope, go through the cramps, hold on, even though I'm slipping, keep holding on, uh, and then try to make my way back up the mountain to safe ground. It was my kids. It was my faith. It was my reasoning that Mm. I could do something with my experience, as I'm doing now, once I come home. And that's exactly what I did. That's exactly how I survived, Alex. We're talking about Ricky the Kid. And it's funny, I had put Giddier in my phone. I don't know how that happened, but Giddier, there you go. Uh, So, you know, you got out in August of 2019, which means this Father's Day, Ricky, was your first one as a free man. And we were texting that Saturday, and I'm like, we're going to talk about this, so let's talk about it. What was that like? Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. It was what I dreamed of. See, we can only dream. Mm. holidays go by labor days memorial days christmases you just dream that next year and then next year coming it don't happen you say next year and then next year coming it don't happen excuse me you say sure next year and eventually Mm. year came now i will say let me go back just to go forward it was my birthday last year i came home in august my birthday was in September, and that was one of those, man, next year's birthday. No, next year's birthday. So last year, my birthday, September 10th, I finally made it, and I did it big. We celebrated big. I was finally home. And the same for Father's Day. It was so important to me uh, because of my children, because of the man that I believe I've, I have become. Mm-hmm. Uh, this past Sunday was a momentous moment for me. I woke up with breakfast uh, served to me in bed. Uh, I took me a shower. I had a spa day set up. Uh, drove over about 10 minutes to the masseuse. My first masseuse or my first massage in my entire life. Uh, it was an hour that felt like 20 minutes. I needed another hour. After that, I drove to the lake. 
stopped by Subway, got me a fresh sandwich, uh, drove back to the lake, parked, looked over the water, ate my sandwich, uh, drove back home, uh, did some work, uh, and then I went and hopped on a uh, Rama 2020 festival event, uh, mm. did a virtual, and then to top it off, I went over to my kid's house. We had dinner together. We laughed wow. and talked. We uh, celebrated. It was a beautiful day. It was I, a I, as we as we talk, I'm thinking of making it a series. So like it would be a bit of a shorter one than when you come back, tell us more. Cause this story is, can't be told in a whole hour. It's a, it's, it's a series, man. This is a series. Yeah. Yeah. But for listeners who are just listening to you for the first time and they're like, wow, he was in prison for 23 years. I'm sure everybody wants to know your experience, like any crazy experiences that you remember most and stick with you to this day or. Um, It's hard mm. because it's all crazy. Mm. Listen, man, it's all crazy. And it's so many stories. And to be honest, yeah, I'm not used to the question because I bury them. I bury them. I bury them and I bury them. I put rubble and rubble and sand and soil. I bury them because they, they weighed me down. To hold okay. on to them, they weighed me down. Uh, and so, and then I'm, I'm just going to be transparent with you. I haven't began to unpack some of that. Wow. I haven't. Now, I, I do have a counselor who I talk to weekly, and if not weekly, bi-weekly, but I haven't fully unpacked that yet. Uh, but I, I can tell you, though, it just close your eyes. Your listening audience, close your eyes and imagine prison, and then imagine anything worse. Just use your imagination, and you're probably going to land on it. And I'm too mm. serious. You're probably going to land on it. It probably was true. It probably did happen. Uh, and so that's mm. how bad it was. It was a real nightmare. I don't want people to walk away thinking, well, wow, he's jubilee. Well, wow, he's cheerful. No, it was a nightmare. It was mm. a nightmare. And sometimes when I have talked about it, it can really uh, uh, disrupt the flow of this interview because it, it shuts me down. It brings sure. me tears. Uh, all this ability to talk and articulate goes out the window. Uh, it's very painful, and I haven't been quite ready to unpack that publicly yet. Well, thank you for being honest about that, and I'm sure um, your help with the counselors is tremendous right now. I mean, that's got to be such a saving grace. Yeah, 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 it definitely is. You know, since I've been home, sometimes I could be in a crowded room and I could feel isolated. Mm. I could feel alone. I could feel like nobody quite knows me or nobody quite understands me. And in fact, you could tell that they're looking at me and they're trying to, like, whether that's why is he smiling when he should be angry? Uh, 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 why is he acting better when he should be bitter? Uh, some people have suggested that he's putting up a force. Oh, he's really mad. Nobody can go through this and then be this jubilee. So I feel like people don't understand me. Uh, oftentimes, nor do whether that's the, me as the person who I am or me as, as it relates to what I've been through. Uh, it can be very lonely sometimes. Ricky, the kid, I, I got to ask you then, because this is the time we're in. You're just settling back in, COVID hits, and then all of a sudden, the George Floyd murder happens. And I'm sure your already psyche is a little, is a little softer. Now you add this. I want to ask you, have you been able to stay upbeat? Because you sound very upbeat right now. You're, you're cheerful. You're So did you stay that way during this whole thing and try and coach people through this? 
Oh, absolutely. I did. Um, I took, I'm going to tell you something, my friend, and I want to share this with your listening audience. What I was able to do, I was able to take my anger and channel that and turn it into my passion. Mm. I became passionate. Uh, and so I also teach this, Alex, my friend, I overeat intelligence over emotions. Not that we can't have emotions, but it is intelligence that needs to supersede or guide those emotions. And so sure, I was upset as it relates to what happened to me. Sure, I was angry, but I learned how to process that energy or that anger energy and turn into passion. When Floyd, uh, when we saw what happened to George Floyd, um, anger bubbled mm-hmm. to Emotions bubble to the top. But then the intelligence, the I over E philosophy that I embrace wholeheartedly kicked in. And what Mm. I've been able to do, I've been on many virtual panels. uh, And once again, the local media reached out to me and we met at a park. And I explained once again to the community, I've kind of been the go-to guy. That's called Ricky. And ask Ricky, how do you deal with this? Or how should people be dealing with this? And really where to place their anger uh, or and, and, and where to place those emotions. It was very upsetting. Uh, I've been talking to attorney generals running here in this region. I've been talking to district attorneys here in this region. Uh, I'll be putting a forum together in, on August the 15th, which marks okay. my release. So for my one-year anniversary, I'll be holding a forum here in this facility uh, that I'm in now. This is office space that we have here. Uh, I'll be holding a forum with the chief of police, with the mayor, with city councilmen, and really, well, that's the goal. They haven't officially accepted yet, but the goal is to be able to reach out to them. I know them and they know me in this community and to try to come together and finish talking about what it is exactly that we can do or what people can do to be most effective. How do we go from protests Mm. to policy to put it in practice? Uh, And so that's going to be important, not just now, but moving forward as well. Ricky, I've got to ask you then how leading up to this, how is your relationship with the cops leading up to this whole ordeal? And now after prison, how has the relationship been? I didn't like police. I didn't like police um, in part because I was a dealer and they was my opposition. Um, The other part was because I let people think for me. Um, and when people say, oh, F the police, I don't like, yeah, sounds good to me. Sounds good enough to me. Uh, that's how I was going into prison. And then, of course, these police or law enforcement and prosecutors sent me to prison. Um, right. But what I learned through my maturation, through my growth and development is, wait a minute. First mm-hmm. of all, there's bad cops, but there's not every cop isn't a bad cop. So that's not fair. I think when somebody have an interaction with a young black male or a cop, have an interaction with a young black male or two, and then he formulates his opinion that all black males is like that, well, that's not fair. So if we have a bad cop or two or 10, because there's been a slight uptick, that don't mean that the thousands, the thousands of officers who leave their house to serve and protect not their community or not the home that they left, but somewhere else. We love a cop. When it's time to call one, whether that's somebody breaking in your car, whether that's a disturbance. Uh, And so I just caution people to let's not pretend or let's not forget the honorable work that many Mm. officers, men and women do every day. Let's not forget that. And let's not give back to them what we're saying we don't want for ourselves. 
uh, which is that bias and that prejudice that's unfair and it's unfitting uh, when it's inappropriately applied. Now, I don't know. I, I feel like you follow this, but the White House has done some prison reform and all that. I'm sure some would say it's not enough, but you are into the police reform and really reforming. So what what would you suggest? What would you advise? Are they doing the right things at the top? What, what do you see? Yeah, well, let's start at the top. Um, when we're talking about the police department, we need to have mayors and we need to have chief of police who won't tolerate it, who, who, who says, you know what? We're going to forget the blue line, right? Or that blue wall, because it is bigger than me and you. Alex, listen, me and you could be best of buddies. We could be riding together. We could be assigned the same patrol. But listen, Alex, I'm going to have to tell you right now, I got your back, man. I got mm. your back. And 100% right. And if you make a small blunder or something, hey, I got your back there. But if you step outside that space, I'm going to tell you, Alex, if you step outside that space, the department is bigger than you and I. The right. department is bigger than you and I. And there's, we, we got hundreds and hundreds of buddies here. And then we can't stain it for them. And nor do I want them to take up for what me and you might do because it's a bigger than you type of situation. And so, sure. Yeah, so I believe chief of police need to take that stance and say, hey, I'm with you, I support you, we go in dangerous situations, we're going to have your back, but when you do the wrong thing, we're going to have to respond to that. You're right. probably going to have to be held accountable, find another place of employment. So I think we need courageous leadership, but I also think that we fail our officers. I believe, Alex, that we fail our officers because we don't train them hardly enough or appropriately as it relates to the circumstances and the conditions that we want them to go out to. Now, we want you to go out to these crazy, awful conditions every day. We give you this training. I'm not saying it's bad training, but what studies are suggesting that it could be much better training. And so, listen, me and you have been on mm-hmm. control. We've been going through things. Um, I got some mental things going on. Sure. You're not helping me. You're not giving me the right mental health. So it's no wonder. Now, I'm not making an excuse for bad behavior, but it's no wonder I go out there and I get myself in trouble because you're not providing me with the proper training and the proper tools that I need to make the best decisions. Uh, So I think retraining um, Mm -hmm. should take place. I also think that police departments uh, have been very slow, have been extremely slow with responding with body cams. Uh, I think body cams uh, need to be finished being dispersed, and I think they need to be turned on. Some places have them, but they're real lax about when and how or the discretion of the officer to turn them on. And so I just think there's a litany of reasons, but those three come to mind when you ask, what is it that we can do to see better policing uh, here in America across these countries? Um, So community policing, sometimes I feel like when our leaders, like mayors, say – they kind of have this swing of you have to be afraid of the cop. You have to be afraid. That's not a helpful message either. I, I don't know. Are you seeing the same thing? I am. I, I'm, I'm definitely seeing the same thing. And it's, it's not a helpful message. Um, we really are. I believe over here with I Am Resilience, my entire team, my entire family, for the most part, we believe in one humanity. We believe in one humanity to where I see you as my brother. Now, I know you're a different you. I know you got a different hairstyle and a different beard. But beyond that, beyond the surface of our differences, more importantly is our commonalities. And we have more in common than we do different. 
I just did a virtual speaking about that, uh, commonalities and differences. And so I see it as one human family, one mm. humanity. We love our kids. We all want the best for ourselves. We all want to grow old. We all want a pension. We all want, it's these commonalities. We all love good food, good burgers. Right. Uh, and and we, we love fellowship. We love laughing. Uh, so what's the difference again? If I cut you and you and 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 or if I cut myself and you cut yourself, we're gonna bleed the same. That's Our right. Blood types typically are the same. We have the same chromosome setups. Wait a minute, where are we different at again? Mm. Uh, and so when you really unpack that and say, let's stop looking at the apparent differences and go deeper and look at what could be the apparent commonalities, we can push back, and then there'll be no there'll be no reason to be fearful. There are no, mm -hmm. there'll be no reason to be afraid of officers. No officers uh, need to be afraid of us. And then we can really uh, do, or the system could work how uh, it should work. I ain't gonna say how it was set up to work because it wasn't set up to actually work for us, but it could work in a much better way. So does the kneeling videos of these cops sort of kneeling to the protesters demands, do you like that? Do you think that's unnecessary? What, what are your thoughts when you see those kind of videos also? I like it if it's sincere. Mm. If it's not, I don't like to be placated. I don't like to be played. I don't play games. People will tell you, listen, I, TikTok is fun. Uh, 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 but even for that, it took me a minute to get over there because I am, I am to be taken serious because the issues of today that's plaguing our country is serious. Uh, and so I don't do no fluff, no games, no gimmicks. That's what I say over here. And so if it is sincere, I like it. It warms mm. my heart. If you are placating, just to keep the violence down or just to keep people peaceful. I don't like it because the ROI on it, the return on that investment is going to come up void. It's going to come up. It's like writing me a check with no money in the bank from which the check was written. It's not going to matter when it's time to cast that check. When it's time for us to really love on each other, that kneeling of the knee, what, how are you going to behave the next time you interact with a black male is the mm. question. I want to know not whether you got on a knee just to pacify the cameras or the crowd. Uh, not quickly to buy that. Very, very interesting. Now I'm going to have you back because you've got a lot of stuff and I don't know if you're working on it, but you're a playwright. So are you working on it like a, something to write out the emotions you're feeling during this and express your emotions through that? Yeah. Yeah. You asked some real good questions, Alice. I really thank you and appreciate you. I can tell that you've been paying attention. Uh, so I wrote plays while in prison. Um, and the administration would allow me to put those plays on. One of them has made it to YouTube called I Want to Be Like My Father. People mm. can go there, either type that in or type my name, Ricky Kidd, and it'll pull up. But even while I was in prison, I partnered with some people on the outside, and they helped me produce my second play, Mind of the Innocent. And it took the crowd through what it was like to be innocent, trying to uh, cry out and plead for help. They, uh, that showcased for two years in 2017 and 2018, and then since I've been home, one of my plays is now inside the hands of the Kansas City Repertoire Theater here. Wow. Yes. That's called, awesome. Oh, oh, man. And blessed, right? Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating journey, my friend. And then just recently, The Melting Pot, another theater, uh, has taken one of my other plays. Uh, and so they are giving it a strong review. Uh, it, there's a process to determine if I'll make a 2021 uh, selection, uh, but I'm excited that they took me serious enough uh, to hear me. One of those plays, my friend, is called Justice, Where Are You? And so mm. to make sure that I'm answering your question, 
clearly. Justice, where are you? Takes us through. We hear about wrongful convictions. We read it in the headlines. We see it on a, a, a ticker of CNN. But what does that look like? And so, justice, where are you? Takes you or takes the audience from a theatrical point of view inside what wrongful convictions look like, or what injustice, what racial bias look like, what an overworked public defender look like, uh, what an overzealous prosecutor look like, what a mm. myopic thinking detective look like. It takes you inside each wow. scene breaking down how the system ends up breaking itself down. Very uh, fascinating. I can't wait to bring it to the people. Uh, I've got to ask you this because earlier today, I was ta- or earlier I was talking about how handwriting has actually helped me get through this, you know, anxiety of being inside, right? So I'm sure for you, you would say handwriting helped you. I don't know, just a random question, but being that you wrote these plays, the physical act of writing must have really helped you out. Yes, yes. I, that was my getaway. Hmm. That was my safe haven. Uh, My first love is writing. I love business. I have an entrepreneur spirit. I love using my life to make a difference in other people's lives. I love that. On my tombstone, I wanted to say I came, I lived, I mattered. Mm. But my first love, my very first love is writing. And I love to write. And the magic is when paper is in front of me and the pen is in my hand. On my shirt, I Am Resilience, my inaugural shirt that I just released uh, last month that's now that can now be uh, found on our website, resiliencemode.com. On it, it says the pen is in your hand. Uh, and that's for two reasons. One is because the magic, when I put a pen in my hand, yep. the papers in front of me, what I can uh, express, uh, how it is therapeutic for me, uh, but also how I get to rewrite the narrative. So like mm. you said, well, when exonerees get out, they supposed to be bitter. No. Mm. The pen is in my hand. I'm going to be better. Well, they just sit around and they watch TV all day. Mm, actually, no, I'm going to apply myself and study the law and I'm going to study the issues surrounding wrong. So the pen is really in our hand. My friend, I often tell people we don't get to choose how tragedy or challenges uh, come upon us, but we do get to choose how they end in the mm. pen it's really in our hand. And I know that even from doing a little homework, not a lot, but doing a little homework about you, that you too represent the spirit of resilience. And you too, my friend, had decided to put the pen in your hand and finish writing how the story for Alex was going to end. And you're still writing it and you're doing a good job at it. And I'm bringing people on who are of the same mindset. Like you are, and and I, I don't know how you're going to react, but I think we've lost the idea of empowerment during all these protests and everything. There needs to be more of saying, hey, not only can you protest, but you can do something. You have to be empowered. And that's what you're doing. I could tell at Resilience Mode. Yeah, yeah. We are definitely leaning in, uh, leading by example. I do it every day. Uh, Some people was telling me, some some of the social media guru, they say, Ricky, people, 80% of people like to see uh, the silly stuff or the, and I'm, I'm just pushing, but listen, I'm going to give you some fun TikToks or whatnot, and I'm going to post some stuff, uh, but really, this is an opportunity for us to empower, to inspire, and I am leaning in, Alex, every day. I'm not just talking the talk. I am walking the walk. Uh, come Tuesday, I'm doing a virtual with a Jackson County prosecutor, a lady running for the Jackson County prosecutor, doing a one-on-one with her. Listen, I'm in the game. 
Put me in the game, coach. Forget sitting on the sidelines, throwing a pebble, and holding up a sign. Now, there's nothing wrong with our constitutional right to protest, but we have to go from protest to policy. And then mm. what does that look like? And what does leadership, when it comes to that, look like? I'm raising my hand. I'm hoping people looking. I'm hoping that they're watching because I'm trying to show them, especially our young minds, especially our young minds who is trying to figure themselves out, who's trying to find a way. I'm saying, mm. hey, look, this is how you do it. And I tell people, don't let a person who's been gone almost a quarter of a century come home only 10 months out and outdo you. Get up off that couch, get up off that soapbox, get in the mm. game and actually do something. Hey, can people watch your virtual with this prosecutor running or is it a private thing? I think it's private. Uh, okay. and I, I, I'm, I, I just suppose that is the case. Uh, I, of course, it's not going to be ran on my feed or anything. Uh, I have no control. I know as running for a prosecutor uh, that they normally don't turn that stuff over. They're even very selective about how they even engage uh, individuals because it can mm -hmm. hurt them. Uh, if they dance with the wrong person or do the wrong thing. Uh, so I'm not quite sure if that's the case. But if I can get some of that, what I can then do, uh, which they may be uh, mm -hmm. open to that, and then share it on my platform and make it available to you and your audience. I want to bring you back so so badly and let people want, let their mind wander about your story because there's so much to unpack. So would you come back in the next couple of weeks? And then yeah, um, yeah. – yeah. Because there's so much, you know, yes. so I'd love to have you back. Yes. One other thing though, homecoming. Let's talk about that quickly. Yeah. You said you got emotional. They actually had almost like, seemed like a lot of the city was there to support you through that. And what was that like? So. Close your eyes again. And picture being a bird. And picture being a bird inside a cage for 23 years. Now, you know you have these wings and you know you can fly because the cage gives you enough space to show that you have the capability. And then one day, somebody opens the bird cage door and there you are, spreading your wings, free, light, flying forever. That's what it felt like, Alex. That's exactly what it felt. It felt like a bird who was let out the cage and I, all I was saying was, wee! Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's exactly what it felt like to me I felt light I felt the burden had been lifted I felt like I was soaring in fact it didn't feel like a bird it felt like an eagle it felt mm. like an eagle because that's how high I was and that's the difference of when you have a person who has this type of potential who has this type of ability to make an impact in the community and you lock that away wrongfully right mm -hmm. You essentially clip his wings and then give him an opportunity to fly. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And I have not stopped. I have not stopped flying since the day that they opened those bird cages. I don't know if you saw, I wrote an article called, you know, we can't be afraid to wake up in America anymore. And I truly believe that. So I have to ask you quickly before we wrap up, are you still afraid or are you confident in yourself that that wouldn't hit you? How do you feel when you walk out the door, I guess, is my question. Optimistic. Good. Okay. I remain optimistic, uh, but I have to tell you real quick why. For 23 years, I fought. I lost 11 times, Alex, before I won one time. And a boxer cannot go in that ring believing that he can be defeated 
I don't care how big, bad, and ugly his opponent look. You have to go in there believing that you can strike a blow, that you can land a punch that can knock your opponent or the opposition down. You have to believe that. If you don't, take the robe off. Take the little headphones that's pumping mm-hmm. you up off and go right past the locker room and go right back out the door because you have already lost before you've won. I know it's hard. I know it's daunting. I know it's difficult. I wake up to the same America that we all wake up to every day. But we cannot walk out that door with a self-defeatist mindset or we lost already. Take your shoes off. Undress yourself, get back in the bed, and go to sleep because there's no need to go back out the door if you think that you can't win. I stand before you today because I believed for 23 years and after 11 losses that I could win, I won, and I'm still winning, and I think collectively we can continue to win. So that's how I feel about that. And uh, I'm passionate about it. I'm thankful that you want to be part of my journey and let me be part of yours. So this is uh, we literally hit it off, folks. For those who don't know, I was texting him like ferociously. Oh man, and you were like vibing with it, and I was like, all right, we're gonna make this happen. So here we are, right? We are because we get to do it together. Yep, together, my man. That's one of my favorite sayings. We get to do it together, America. We get to do it together. Has that lawyer? So there was a lawyer that duetted you on TikTok. Has she reached out at all and like wanted to? collab with you at all or not really uh no i not that i'm aware of now okay. i get hundreds of dms hundreds and i am very deliberate about responding to them uh usually myself uh hardly ever i don't like it there's people around me that do certain things but i tell them don't touch those don't mm. touch and so sometimes what that happens so sometimes what happens is i get backlogged because i don't want nobody touching them i don't want if they see something that maybe need to get pulled flag it and then tell me, hey, I know you might be busy today, but like you and I, they flagged me and told me, that, hey, I got it. I'll take it from here. That's my authenticity. Uh, and mm. so if she did or if anybody did, and I, if I can say this uh, on your show, if there's anybody out there who have reached out to me or who want to reach out to me, feel free to do so. I promise you I will get to it. I will get to it. Uh, in fact, Saturday. It's a respond day, just all going in there, making oh, wow. sure that I'm, I'm talking about to the smallest of person, to the smallest of thank yous. Uh, I like to respond because I want to stay authentic. I want to stay rooted. I want to stay connected to the people as they've reached out and tried to stay connected to me. And that leads me, where can we find you? I, I could give you the Instagram, but I want you to tell us from your heart yeah, and tell where you can yeah, find us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my IG is Ricky Kid IAR. That's Ricky Kid, my name. I am Resilience is my uh, uh, platform. So Ricky Kid IR on Instagram, on Facebook, uh, it's Resilience Mode or Ricky Kid. Um, and then uh, on Twitter, I think it's Ricky Kid 12. What I like people to do uh, to learn more is go over to resiliencemode.com. Check us out there. Look at what we're doing. Subscribe if you're interested in getting involved. Ricky, how can I help? How can I get involved? How can I use my voice? How can you help me? Subscribe. And what that does is the only reason why we do that is because it allows me to make sure that I'm responding to you. Go over there. We get that. They feed that over to me. Now, some people may uh, check it out before it gets to me, but at least we are responding to your needs and making sure that either we connecting, get involved, I may be uh, disseminating certain information to you, but that's how we connect. That's where people can find me. ResilienceMode.com, Ricky Kid IAR, Resilience Mode on Facebook. And I hope people in New York have reached out to you already. I hope I'm not the first one, but how many have reached out from New York? Um, a lot. 
Uh, right. I, I'm, I'm all over. Uh, I mean, a lot. Uh, and, 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 and I don't want to scramble and uh, misspeak uh, while we're talking here, but there's a lot of love from New York. In fact, the most of my, so I look at the analytics okay. and a fat chunk of my followers are from New York. Wow. And so it's funny that you mentioned this right now as we talk, because I'm maybe 38% on IG of my followers is actually from New York. The people have shown me love all over the country, man, man. Mm. Um, and I'm really, excuse me, I'm really excited and I'm really appreciative for that outreach because again, I believe that we get to do it together. That's what we're doing tonight. We're raising a bar and we're raising awareness and we're doing it together. So. Ricky, the kid, thank you for doing this tonight and I'm going to have you back in the near future. So um, yeah. audience that wants more, you'll get more. You're working up more Ricky as the days go on. So thanks again so much. Ricky yeah. Kidiar. And, and, and then if they want to, if I could say real quick, sure, which sure. is important to me too, uh, you can find uh, my book, Vivid Expressions. Oh, yes. I would like to plug that because it gives them a piece of me. It gives them a way to connect with me. Uh, Vivid Expressions, A Journey Inside the Mind of the Innocence. It's on Amazon.com. Uh, and then also would like to say for people who like to continue to see the work that I'm doing, because this is my job, this is my full-time job. And I show up at places that oftentimes don't require uh, any type of financial exchange. Instead of asking for a handout, I ask for a hand up. Typically, uh, I started selling my inaugural uh, signature t-shirt, I Am Resilience, with my signature. It can be found on Resilience Mode as well, Alex. Cool. Click the top, shop with IR. It'll take them to the shirts. We got them in gray. We got them in blue. We got them in red, especially for the holidays. And if they get in now, it's free shipping and handling. Uh, it's $23 for the 23 years that I was wrongfully convicted. But again, uh, a flat fee shipping and handling is incurred on our end. I like to see people not only walk in their resilience, but where they resilience. That's yep. not tagline i really feel that way so if people want to connect or feel like they're connected with the platform the cause again they can get the book they can go buy the t-shirt wear it rock it and then again we all get to do this together hey i'm gonna buy that shirt too so uh ricky god bless you man and we will definitely connect back up and thanks for telling us about that we'll get to the book next time because i'm sure that has a lot of in and of itself worth talking yeah, about have to share a couple pieces with you on air yeah absolutely i would love that so we'll do that in the next couple weeks all right brother Hey, that was Ricky the Kid, Ricky Kidiar. I'm Alex Garrett. We'll talk to you soon on Alex Garrett Podcasting.